This episode of The First Feature is sponsored by Musicbed. Musicbed is making better music accessible to everyone, from wedding films and small businesses to broadcast ads and feature films. With their highly curated roster of over 650 artists and composers, they've helped soundtrack groundbreaking projects for Jaguar, Apple, Hulu, and Nike, as well as HBO's The Leftovers, Amazon's Transparent, and Oscar-winning Shorts. They also help where you need it the most, in your search. Not only do they have incredible browse and search tools, but on top of that, they have a team of people on staff who are dedicated to helping you find the perfect song for your project. At no extra charge, they'll send you suggestions based on what you're looking for. Consider them another member of your team. Discover why leading brands around the world make Musicbed their first choice when licensing music at musicbed.com welcome. And to sweeten the deal, they're offering 20% off your next on-site license. Just use coupon code FIRSTFEATURE20 at checkout. That's first with a capital F, feature with a capital F, 20, no spaces, at checkout. Welcome to the first feature, a No Film School podcast. My name is Ryan Koo. I'm the founder of No Film School, and my first feature is titled Amateur. Amateur is a Netflix original releasing this Friday, April 6th, 2018. Uh, every episode of the, the first feature will cover a different phase of filmmaking, from screenwriting to prep to production to release. It's meant to be a step-by-step guide to everything I did to get my first feature made. If you have any questions about your own feature, you can email them to firstfeature at nofilmschool.com or find me on Twitter at Ryan B. Koo. This is episode two, Making a Short. I'm here with producer John Fusco from No Film School. And the reason I wanted John on here is that he just made a short or has almost finished. Very close. A short. Yeah. You're in, you're in post right now. Post, yeah. We're about to picture lock. I think we're only a few rounds of edits away. And when I say a round of edit, I mean like version 5.2 or 0.3 or 0.4. Uh, I think version 6 will probably be the picture lock. I like it. So why don't you tell our listeners a little little bit about your short? Sure. So my short is called The Guy. Um, It's about a guy who uh, has these sort of prophetic dreams about rowing out into the middle of the ocean. uh, And then one day he meets this girl in the diner that he works at. And uh, the girl asks him out on a date, but he can't go on out out on a date because he has to go home and play Parcheesi with his mom, uh, which leads him to then follow his dream. And uh, because he's so discouraged with his life, he rows out into the middle of the uh, ocean or bay or whatever body of water. Let's not get into spoilers here. I mean, yeah, (laughs) I guess not. Well, no, I'm not going to say anything more after that. Okay. Uh, That's, that's going to be, that's, that's all I'm going to tell you, but he finds something out there uh, that will change the universe forever. That's nice. how I like to put it. Nice hook. Yeah. It's um, basically the same plot as my short amateur, yeah. which <laughs> revolves around an amateur Parcheesi player. <laughs> we have eerily similar shorts. I watched your short again this morning, and I was like, wow, yeah, tonally, it's all the same, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my feature amateur is about basketball, and my short amateur is also about basketball. One of the things that we talked about last week with with Eric was that the idea that my feature is based on the short is actually incorrect. I had been working on my feature script for Amateur for quite a while and felt that 
getting it over the hump, getting it financed, uh, one of the things that was standing in my way was that I didn't have director's real material of the same tone, of the same genre as the feature. I previously talked about our web series, The West Side, but that was this kind of absurd uh, alternate universe experiment that was a urban Western and really had nothing to do with basketball or sports. So that was where the inspiration for my short came from was to say, let me do something that can show I have a grasp of the subject matter and of the world. Uh, But we're not here to say that you should only make a short if you have a feature in mind or that's the only reason to make a short. They should stand on their own as their own statements and their own work. But because this is a podcast about making the first feature, that's kind of what we're going to focus on today. Do you want to make the guy into a feature? Um, You know, the guy never started out as a proof of concept. Um, it actually started out as a, as a sort of idea for an anthology. Um, so my story would feed into another one of my friend's stories that dealt with the same themes, which would then feed into another one of my friend's stories. So no, it was very much kind of a, a standing on its own thing. But then interestingly, uh, I mean, working at no film school, I, and going around the festival circuits, one thing I would hear again and again is that, you know, you have a short, you're going to festivals, you really need to maximize uh, the use of your time at these festivals. So I started thinking about, like, what I should have on deck. So my brother and I are now writing a feature um, that is loosely based around the guy. It's, I'd say it's more like a spiritual sequel or a spiritual prequel in a way. Yeah, and that's what amateur is, actually, is it's a prequel of sorts to the feature. I had been writing the feature and the one of the reasons I wanted to make the feature was that I wanted to give the entire film to the kid, to the 14-year-old, and make it from his perspective. But from a storytelling standpoint, that means that he's in every single scene and he's the audience's point of view character and all of the side plots that a movie told in a different way, that it might just cut to these other characters having a conversation, in my feature, that can't happen. The configuration is is such that if he doesn't witness it, we don't see it. So as I was writing and as I was researching so many of the other supporting characters in the movie, I had other ideas for scenes, for plots that you don't see in the feature. And that's where the idea for the short came from, was to make some of the minor characters the protagonist of the feature. So it is kind of a, a prequel, and it doesn't necessarily lead directly into the feature, but there is a character that has the same name as a character in the feature, and you know it's certainly linked that way. I don't want to take credit for the idea of turning a short into a feature. Uh, I think you just did a podcast recently on Thunder Road, which was a short how many years before it was a feature? Uh, just two years, actually. Uh, I think he was at Sundance with Thunder Road in 2016, which was the first year that I was at Sundance with you guys. Um, and the short was, I mean, the short's incredible. Uh, but interestingly, he actually ended up using the entire short for the first scene of his movie. So, like, it is almost a frame-by-frame replica of his short. And then he went on to, like, establish a longer plot line after, which is something that I wouldn't necessarily think about doing when adapting a short. I would always think of it as a more tonal exercise, as we've, like, both talked about. Well, that, but that's interesting. So Thunder Road just won a prize at South By. Yeah, it won, and- it won Best Narrative Feature. That's uh, that's that's the one. Yeah. And <laughs> also, 
someone else who did that by making their short just a scene extracted from the feature uh, was Whiplash. Mm-hmm. The, the short Whiplash is a particular scene in the feature, and it's basically, I mean, the production values are different, the actors are different, but it's almost line for line what it is in the feature. So in that case, it's a great demo for the feature. But there are a lot of other features that have started as shorts in different ways. Uh, Obvious Child was a short. Half Nelson was a short. Frozen River was a short. And another Netflix film, First Match, which will have come out by the time you're listening to this, was also a short before becoming a feature. So it's a a well-established approach. Let's get into uh, actually making it now that we have sort of the why should you do this. How long were you writing yours? I was probably writing for, I'd say since 2013 is when I first wrote the first draft. But that first draft came in like two weeks. Like I wrote that thing in easy. I was just inspired to write it, essentially. Um, But then, you know, it took another four years for me to actually like commit to sitting down and making it. I probably would have done things differently knowing now uh, what I do about the limitations of trying to make a short or I guess um, sort of what benefits the medium of the short more. Uh, I probably would have written less locations. I would have written less characters. I would have not put it, it like set it in Maryland or like on the bay out on location. Cause again, this was like my first short I'd ever done. And you've got to shoot on water. Yeah. And we got to yeah. shoot on water. But that's, that's a great point is that it took four years to get all of the resources together for you to make that. And amateur, my short was actually the opposite because I'd written this feature that required all those things, a lot of locations and action mm-hmm. and a lot of characters and so th- I had a very clear objective in writing a short, which was to get it made and yeah. to write it as requiring the least amount of resources possible. And so we actually went very quickly. Once I had the the hook of the short, and you can go watch this online. It's on Vimeo. It's a staff pick. It's called Amateur Short Prequel to the Feature Film. Uh, you can Google it. I would not recommend Googling <laughs> Amateur yeah. movie or other in, other side. I put it amateur on Twitter, and I got some uh, when you when you first made the announcement, and I got yeah. some. Um, yeah, just don't do it at work if you're going to do it. We'll right. Say that. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> you can find. I'm pretty sure it's probably the only Vimeo staff pick. There's these other genres of amateur movies. Yeah. <laughs> are not maybe as curated, but there's a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, but essentially, the short is a two hander. It's basically a conversation between two people in one location, and that was something that I felt I could do. It's not an entire... There's a little bit of basketball at the beginning, but it's two people playing one-on-one. It's not two teams with five guys on each side and the referees and extras and and all that kind of It's almost more like B-roll in a sense. It's like, I mean, I'm sure it was highly choreographed B-roll, but... I'm sure like you just were like, hey, okay, let's like play some one-on-one and then we'll film it and then you take whatever looks best in that situation and then you move on. Filming a sport, you can't do traditional casting. Basketball is a sport where the second a basketball hits somebody's hand, you know whether they've played before and you know whether it's realistic because actors have a lot of faith in themselves, which they need, that they can do anything. Mm-hmm. But there's no substitute for somebody who's actually played basketball growing up if they're playing someone who's good. So for us, going into casting, it was the same for the feature as it was for the short, which is there's the audition process. 
and I always put the acting and the performance first. But then there's a second step of the process, which is then let's go play some ball and let me see you do various things so that when I write the action, I know what your strengths are as a player and I can give you something that's in your wheelhouse that looks good as opposed to saying, I want you to do this spin move from here to there, mm-hmm. but it turns out that their crossover is better than their spin move. Like, you have to know in advance. So the action in the short is just sort of a little bit of a preamble, but it is more than just uh, playing some pickup. Like I already knew what I wanted the Curtis Cook Jr., my lead actor. I already knew what I wanted him to do exactly because I'd seen him do it in the audition. Yeah, for me, I would say like the whole process of auditioning, I was pretty lucky because, you know, I went to theater school. I didn't go to film school. So the resources that I could draw from were actually talented actors. So for me, like the audition was all about the crew. And it was like, because I didn't know anyone on the technical side of things, essentially. How did you find those people? I mean, that's 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 one of the best reasons to make a short because you and I were coming from similar situations where... I had never made a short before. I didn't have a lot of crew members uh, on call that I knew. And actually, the way that the whole short really got kicked off is that I had been, after I, I did a Kickstarter campaign, and we'll do an episode on that later, but I, I sort of did things in uh, out of order. Uh, Chip, my producer, who had come onto the feature and was giving me feedback on the feature script, I sent him the short, and I said, hey, I wrote this. I think it's really doable. And it was something that I had imagined being smaller scale, like I would shoot it myself and there was no budget. But then Chip read it and said, let's do it. And so then all of a sudden, instead of it just being me pushing the ball up the hill, he was on board and he had some contacts. And I had met Greg Wilson, a director of photography, because I spoke on, of all things, an After Effects panel, because I'd done all the visual effects in my web series, The West Side, myself. And I'd done them all in After Effects, so I was presenting that. And Greg and I rode the train home together. And it turned out that not only had he been a documentary cinematographer, uh, but he had also done a lot of high-speed phantom camera sports work. And the configuration of my movie is it's a little bit documentary-like off the court, but then it's very elevated and cinematic on the court. And I immediately thought of Greg for the feature. And so once I sent it to Chip, then I also sent it to Greg. And then all of a sudden there were three of us looking for equipment and locations. And it became a larger scale thing where it wasn't just something I was going to shoot myself. Um, And then the question became, how much money do we have to make this? And I think in your case, you did a Kickstarter for your short. In my case, I'd already done a Kickstarter for the feature and I didn't want to spend that money on the short. Obviously that, that, that money is for the feature. Yeah. So I had received a grant from Tribeca for the feature. And I went to the Tribeca Film Institute and I said, hey, to help me get over this hill, which is I've been trying to get over for years at this point, can I use the grant money to make a short? And they said, yeah, it's your it's your grant money. Do what you think is best for the, the feature project. So that's where the financing came from for us. And that was a $15,000 grant. So we very clearly had our budget from that okay so you had all this money uh all, from, all, all of this it. money hey fifteen thousand dollars is uh is a lot of money it's a it's a, that's honestly that seems like the amount to go for for that's a good a amount short. to make yeah. a short um that's what i went for that's the exact number i went for in my kickstarter and there you go um i had other help outside of that like from producers that i found uh 
otherwise I would have been way in the hole. Um, yeah, I mean, we managed to spend $15,000 and there are so many in-kind things on that, on the short and so many things that I did myself. Therefore, that no one was being, you know, there was no one being paid as a writer, director or editor because I did all those things. Yeah. So money goes very, very quickly. Yeah. And uh, it, it, what sounds like a large number for a very contained short goes and evaporates yeah. and is all of a sudden gone. So then how did you prepare yourself with that $15,000 to make the short? What did you do in pre-production uh, that would maximize your budget essentially? Well, the first thing was finding a location because it's a basketball gym. You needed the right setting. And, and even though it's two people in one location, that location has sub locations. We're in the locker room. We're in the main space. We're walking outside. So Chip was looking around for gyms. And if you have $15,000, obviously you can't spend several thousand dollars on a gymnasium or you just don't have much money left over for everything else. So the first thing is that we needed a location and then we needed a schedule. And for us, it was a two-day shoot. So one of the nice things about doing a two-day shoot and a short in general is you can get really good crew members because it's a weekend thing and there's a finite amount of time. There's an end date. And if you're shooting in a couple of weeks, most crew members already know their schedule. They're not going to get the call from Martin Scorsese for the $100 million feature that takes weeks and weeks and weeks if you're pretty soon shooting. Um, so if you're in a place like New York or LA, or if you're in any area where there's a good crew base and you're shooting pretty quickly, you can actually get really experienced crew members. And you, you had yeah. experienced crew. Yeah. I mean, I, again, like with, you know, it's, it's all about making that effort to actually start. And then once you start and you find your people, it's a snowball effect. It's like, you know, I brought him my DP and then he went to NYU and, uh, I lucked out like with the people that this guy knew. He knew Ted Maroney, who was the uh, gaffer on The Eyes of My Mother, which is a movie that I saw at Sundance. And I didn't even know that Ted did The Eyes of My Mother until I was on set with him <laughs> driving back one day from set. My DP also brought on the production designer. Uh, the Pretty much everyone <laughs> who was on that crew was knew Adam in some way. Let's talk about the other part of the prep, the creative part of prep. So did you storyboard? Did you shot list? Yeah, I did. Um, and I'd never done it before. So that was like the scariest part of it for me. <laughs> you could get so detailed with that storyboard or whatever, that shot list. Um, I've talked to people who have made clay, like literally made clay models of their whole movie and like picture booked it out from there, which is insane. Um, Jim did the entire thing on audiobook. He read the script uh, acted out all the parts, added music so that his crew could hear like what he was going for essentially. So yeah, I'd go through and first I'd do shot lining. I'd go through my script and um, say, this is going to be a close up. This is going to be a medium shot, whatever. And then you have that shot list down. Then you can right. translate so that shot, shot lining list. Is, is on the script yes. itself. You draw a line of when you think in this scene, your coverage is going to be a close-up or a wide, and then you have essentially the the construct of the scene in your head. And it's a great visual way yeah. to do it. It's really great. And then, you know, the shot, the shot lining also helps in terms of, like, looking at the coverage because you have, 
you know, the way I did it was I had uh, four or five different colors coming down my script, uh, and each color represented a different shot. So I could see when one shot was broken and the other was still going. Um, so then you can really visualize how the final picture will look out because you have every single camera set up. It's hard to describe. On Am I doing an okay job of describing this? I was just wondering whether you did different colors for different shot sizes. Yeah, for, well, for different like shots. Every uh, time it's orange, it's a wide shot? Yeah. Every that kind of thing? Yeah, orange, like orange wide shot, red close up, uh, green over the shoulder, like who are gotcha. we looking at? Gotcha, gotcha. Um, and then you can really see what's missing, essentially. Uh, and then from there, you can, you know, draw stick figures if you want to, but I, don't, I honestly didn't really think it was, I think it, I might have wasted a little bit of time going as in-depth into the storyboard as I did. What about you? So I've never storyboarded in my life. I find it incredibly frustrating because I really like moving shots, that transition, that tell the story over the course of a shot as opposed to just cutting from static angles and storyboarding feels so antiquated. But we're also in this era where the animatic kind of tools and maybe getting into more augmented reality kind of uh, ways of, of being able to move a camera through a virtual space and do it much more intuitively, that those aren't there yet, certainly not for an indie. So I've always been looking for what the next storyboarding solution is. And in my case, I usually do a combination of just shot listing and then doing a diagram and overhead of the space where the cameras are. In the case of Amateur the Short, and we can just use this as a transition to getting into production. Most times you're not adding shots on the day, you're cutting shots on the day in order to make the schedule. And while Amateur the Short is a two-day shoot, we'll get into later all of the Murphy's Law type of things that happens. Uh, most of that nine-minute short were sh was shot after lunch on day one. And... A scene that you might shot line and say, oh, this shot's, this scene is going to be seven setups. In amateur, almost every scene became three setups because it was, I, I need something to cut. I've got the coverage of the actors and, I'm, and the performances, and I need something else to get in or out or to go away to in the middle. And it was just that sort of really basic grammar um, because time and money were so tight. And when, you ha when you're lighting the short, and you have the light stands and the flags and everything around, it, it slows down and you can't just say, okay, I'm going to run over here and get the wide now. You've got to move everything. And uh, that was one of the, the lessons for me of making the short was just figuring out what my priorities were in terms of, well, you can do this many setups or you can get more takes with the actors. And the short for me was, well, now I know this has been really valuable for me as a director because I always will prioritize the performance and the actors and that amount of time. And if it means that I have to have, with our limited resources, less of a elaborate visual storytelling style because I can't get the setups that I want or the movements that I want, then as long as I am telling the story through the actors' emotions and performances, then it's still going to work and I'll get more setups on larger productions in the future. Yeah, and what I also found um, on my shirt was that like a lot of times when you're eliminating cuts or eliminating uh, angles, you can just combine 
a lot of the ideas that you had. So you can like take two shots that you thought you were going to have and make them one essentially. Like you could do an over the shoulder wide instead of like an over the shoulder close up and a wide, that sort of thing. Um, so then in terms of also, if you get really pressed for time, then you can do a shot by not cutting. If you know when you need a shot, you can just have your camera move, not like in a nicely planned dolly, but just have uh, either go back to one and call a reset without cutting and have your your, your DP move to a, a new shot that you need or in the, the middle of a scene, you know, transition to a new angle. Because uh, mm. time, time is so tight in some of these things that it's really about getting the bare minimum as opposed to having your druthers. So when you say, like, you know, we talked about, you talked a little bit about, like, the lighting setup. Um, what else did you have in terms of a setup uh, while you were in production for the short? Like, what camera did you shoot on? Were there any challenges uh, with the camera in terms of time? Um, yeah, this short was a while ago. So... I know that you guys shot on an Aria Alexa with anamorphic lenses, and there's I'm jealous of that. This my short doing it in 2013. I had a red camera at the time, so the plan was to shoot it on a Scarlet. But then Greg's friend had a red Epic that wasn't being used that weekend, so we said, okay, let's just use the 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 extra resolution. Uh, we might as well use it. It's not costing us anything. Which is another great thing about doing a short on a weekend is if you're getting available equipment that no one else is using, you can get a really good rate. The package might be better than what's available if you're trying to shoot a feature and you needed to take that off the rental house's hands for four weeks or more. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's when we were scheduling, we absolutely scheduled for a weekend for that exact purpose just because we knew that maybe we could just get a little bit of an extension on our weekend rate. And a lot of times the gear rent, like the rental houses will make that like happen. I don't know. I don't know if that's a common thing or if I lucked out, but like they were totally accommodating for us in that way where they were like, okay, yeah, you need two extra days on the end of that weekend. That's fine. We'll give it to you for the same rate. A lot of rental houses want to establish relationships with people early in their careers because you will come back to them. Yeah. And so first of all, for a weekend rate, if you're doing a week shoot, it's not the whole seven days, right? You'll, you'll get a rate for a weekend or for a combination of days because obviously the checkout and bringing it back and all of that takes a bit of work. So um, weekends are a great way to get gear. What did you have to rent? You had the Epic that your friend lent you. So like in terms of lenses, did that, did he also have lenses or, uh, you know, what was, what was? Yeah, we had, we had some, some Zeiss super speeds and, uh, but we wanted, again, speed was such a priority that we did rent zoom lenses, actually. We shot the, the short on zoom lenses so that we wouldn't have to swing a lens so that I could say, okay, go wider, or now I want this to be a close-up. I don't think there's any shots in the short that are actually zooming. We basically shot it as if it were primes, and that was our cinematic language. Mm. But the time savings of just being able to hit a desired focal length without taking the matte box off and going yeah. for lens and everything was one of the reasons we did it on, I believe they're on Genoo, the the lightweight zooms. That's great. I mean, when, you know, we you, you mentioned that we shot on an Alexa with anamorphic lenses and we shot on the Alexa classic with these like vintage Lomos. So 
it took a while to get those changed out. And that was a serious time consumer. Um, I think that using a zoom lens as a substitute for primes is a really interesting way for especially first time filmmakers to take advantage of, you know, time. <laughs> yeah. And so some of the considerations are that primes are faster. So if you're going to be shooting in a low light environment, if your camera's not very sensitive, you may need the extra stops of primes, uh, depending on how much light you're throwing mm. on the subject. For us, we had we essentially constructed a book light and put it on C stands with wheels, and so this is just a large. I don't know if it was uh, ten by ten, twelve by twelve, but essentially we're just bouncing a light off of a very large, soft reflector, so that it has a. It's the quality is as if it's coming from a much more diffuse, further away source, like you'd have in a gym. So for us, we were essentially just wheeling that around depending on which side we wanted the key light to be coming from and then zooming to the desired focal length so that our setup time between takes was as, as short as possible. What kind of crew did you end up having during the production? Like, what was the total amount of people that were involved in this two-day shoot? It was so long ago now that I, you don't remember? I have I a hard barely, time remembering. Yeah. I think... Uh, it was probably, it was either two and two or three and three, and that's the, the sort of industry terminology for grip and electric. Um, I think we had, yeah, we had a, a, the DP was the operator, Greg, and, and that's one tip for uh, indies, is your, your DP, if they're a fantastic operator, a lot of the times you don't have the amount of time to light that larger studio movies do, so a lot of what your visual language is going to be is their framing and their movement and uh if it's handheld especially what is their intuition and how do they respond to the characters so greg has been a, a camera operator for years and he's a fantastic handheld operator so that so he was the operator and then we had a assistant cameraman and a second ac uh and there's no dollying or crane or steady cam in the short so it was really just um i think we didn't even have a, a lighting truck. We had a sprinter van, mm-hmm. which which you can pack a lot of stuff into. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would say the same exact thing. My DP was also my camera op, um, and it wasn't it wasn't a handheld in his case. Um, and our we had two ACs as well, but our two ACs dropped out the night before we were set to go down to Maryland. So, you know. A, you so really, what did you do? I mean, luckily they found the the kids that dropped out found replacements for themselves, which was good. I don't know what we would have done if that weren't the case. Really, your DP, if he if he can just control, and I mean, really everyone. Like this is something I talked about with Jim uh, Cummings from Thunder Road, is that the new wave of filmmakers are going to be people who can do everything on set, and the more people that you have on your set or on your crew in that in that manner, uh, the smoother your production will be and the more efficient you can be, I think, in terms of a lot of things, in terms of budget, in terms of, uh, yeah, time. I think it's helpful, too, as a director. I've been an editor. I've been a DP. I've been an AC. So you know what someone's job is when you've done it before yourself and you know the vocabulary to use, and that's that's incredibly helpful uh, from your own standpoint is, is you're not demanding things that are unreasonable because mm-hmm. you've been there, you've done it yourself and you know what's possible. And conversely, if someone's telling you something isn't possible, then you have the actual knowledge from having been hands on yourself to say, yes, it is. This is how you do it. 
so that way you can make sure that you're you're able to accomplish what you're looking for. So what was the um, biggest like knowledge takeaway that you that you got from your short from making your short? What was the most educational thing you learned? Well, I said earlier that I learned what my priorities are as a director, and I think that's something that a short is really helpful for because it's not a situation where you get to have this and that. It's usually or. You know, do you care about the the performances and and can you get the sixth or seventh take, or do you want to get that extra setup? And so for me, it was really actors. And I also learned that in terms of camera work, my taste and my priorities are freedom of camera movement. And a lot of beautiful movies, the the f- shots are so composed because they've placed every element perfectly, and it's it's easier to get a really well-composed shot if it's static because you, you move this in the foreground and just so, and then you frame it over there and the actor's just standing on their mark. Whereas if you're going to transition from this side of the room to the other side of the room over the course of a shot, it's much harder to control the lighting on each individual element and all of the space in between and this larger area of background. So for us, I felt in the short constrained by the amount of grip and electric equipment that was everywhere and it was valuable for me to learn that I really like a moving camera and I like a shot that within I like a shot that has progression and um, so you'll see that the feature is informed by that we spent less time lighting and there are the shots have uh, it's not just you know close-up close-up there's a, there's longer takes and there are progressions to them that was something I learned directly from having felt more constrained on the short. Mm, that's awesome. Well, then let's get into, uh, you, you asked earlier, let's just, let's just have some, uh, let's have some torture stories here. You know, the whole Murphy's Law of production affects every movie. And I think that's something else that you learn from making a short is how to endure that because everybody says every movie's hard. But in reality, of course, there are different scales of hard and there are different uh, scales of disasters. So what was the worst thing that happened to you? The worst thing that happened to me, I think you probably know, and it is it is a thing that maybe we glossed over in terms of people you need on your production. Uh, I did not have a DIT. Um, and, you know, we were shooting on an Alexa with massive files, raw files, uh, that we'd have to dump every day at the end of shooting. And somehow... You know, because my two ACs dropped out the day before, that fell on my DP too. And that was something that he said he could handle. Um, And I don't, you know, I don't blame him at all. I think this comes from me, from me being an inexperienced director. I would have never put that upon him looking back. Um, And we suffered because of it. We lost a scene in DIT. I'd say like the third, on the last night we were at this location. And that was pretty devastating but you have to like really learn (laughs) to move on and as director you can't you can't be brought down by anything on set really you need to just like have the positive attitude because if you don't have a positive attitude your crew isn't going to have a positive attitude and that's huge is keeping that enthusiasm going on set so you know i was like hey man you know it sucks but we got to move on and he was he, he was upset by it he was visibly upset by it but we had this was at six in the morning when he told me this and we were on our way moving to the next location and there's no time to be thinking about that stuff. You just got to move on and you got to keep going and make it the best you can. It's a, it's a great lesson. And that's something my producer chip said to me having, you know, he's produced so many movies and worked with a lot of directors and 
has won the Sundance Grand Jury Prize. And so for him making a short with the director from his perspective, he's also testing the director as to what does this director do when something goes wrong? Do they lose their shit? Do they stay calm? Do, you know, Can they keep the morale on set going while still also being demanding enough to get mm-hmm. a product that's that's up to their standards? So it is great to go through these terrible things as terrible it is in the moment. Uh, in the case of in the case of amateur the short, um, you know, similarly, I think there's always the technical issues because if you're doing a feature, you have enough time for everybody to get up to speed and to get into rhythm, and to work out whatever kinks there are with the equipment that maybe you didn't find out in the checkout. In a short, you're you're booting up, you're shooting, and then you're done. There's not that time to bring in an extra piece of equipment or to swap something or to swap a person. Um, and and you yeah. might not even be like in a place where you're able to do that. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. You, you might be in the middle of fucking nowhere. Well, here's the, exactly to that point. We shot in Edison, New Jersey, and it's a night shoot, so it's overnight. And there was there was a part of the the short that's not in the short, and uh, that's actually not because well. Yeah, it is because of technically, but it's also because of what I found in the edit room, which we'll talk about. But we had a car mount and we had straps and the suction cup and all the things to put the, the camera on the hood of the car, but we didn't have the bolts. And so in the middle of the night in New Jersey, there's no Home Depot open. Yeah. So so all of a sudden this car mount that you planned, you can't shoot with it and it's a two day shoot. So you're just not getting that shot. And the, the other problem we had was also... This is an earlier era of cameras. It's an earlier era of red cameras. And it was the temperature on our second day of our shoot started off at about 40 degrees in the morning. And then it dropped to close to zero over the course of the night. So we weren't dressed warmly enough. And then the the camera, you know, cameras and lenses don't do well with quick temperature changes or drastic temperature changes. So lenses, you usually want to put them outside and let them acclimate so that they're not fogging up if you're shooting there. In the case of the camera, though, at that era of red, you had to black shade if, if you're getting a noisy image to acclimate the camera correctly. And a black shade takes 45 minutes back then. So that, imagine sitting around on set for 45 yeah, minutes, yeah, yeah. not shooting. Well, that also doesn't go well with your, your ethos either of, uh, you know, like it seems like you were very focused on keeping things running at a fast, uh, efficient pace. And to have to wait for that and also uh, in the freezing cold doesn't sound like a good time at all. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and, and it, again, it's a test. Can, can you go through this and not, uh, and not lose your shit? But then the other challenge we had was we had a picture vehicle. And so picture vehicles are the, the, the cars or other autom- you know, other vehicles that are in the movie. And this is a, a, a no-budget short. We can't go get uh, you know, to, to an agency that does picture vehicles per se. So I just rented a zip car because I said, if you go to Hertz or something, you don't know what car you're going to get. And I have a car driving in into a night shot, so I don't want it to be a really dark car. I want it to stand out, and it needs to be, for the reasons of uh, narrative, it needs to be a nice vehicle. So I went on to Zipcar to rent a BMW or a Mercedes that was appropriate. And then uh, the day that we're, that I was driving it to set, which is hilarious, making a low-budget short and then pulling up <laughs> a BMW or a Mercedes, people are like, wait, why are we not getting yeah, exactly. very much money on this? The director's in a, in a, in a Benz? Uh, what happened is whoever had the zip car before me crashed it. And so the zip car calls me and says, can you take this other car 
And it's like that I had chosen Zipcar because you can choose the color of the car and all these things. So I ended up with a different vehicle. And if you look at the short, you can see that the bumper on the back is or the front is messed up. because I guess someone else had crashed that one. <laughs> but the other problem we had was that the actor who showed up to play the father, who I think in the in the script, it, it very clearly says drives. His character name might even be Driver. Uh, this is a problem that you really only have in New York. Yeah had never driven a car and did not have a driver's license and did not think to tell us that. So Actors. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> Murphy's Law. Yeah, so I guess I would say um, that the biggest thing I learned now now that I've had a, a little bit of time to think about it is I was, I was just talking about this to a friend the other day too. It's just like throughout the whole process is never to demean your short uh, or never to play it down as something insignificant. Because if you think it's insignificant, if you're like, oh, this is just my little project, you know, this is my little silly thing, then no one else is going to take it seriously. So you really have to treat it like it is a serious, life-changing experience, because it is. Um, and it'll make you, you, if you don't have that enthusiasm, that enthusiasm isn't going to spread, essentially. So that's what I would say I was the biggest takeaway for me. Absolutely. That's a great lesson. And it's the old, if you shoot for the stars, you end up with the moon. Like if you fall short of your expectations or your goals, at least by the reach being as far as it was, you will have achieved something. Yeah. And for me with the short, even though it's easy to say that it's a small production from a, a number of speaking character standpoint, from a number of location standpoint, from a budget standpoint, I was absolutely trying to achieve greatness with this. Yeah. And my goals of what I was trying to say with it were even within these constraints of just having two people have a conversation in one location, I'm dealing with much larger themes. It's We're talking about race, we're talking about preconceived notions, and we're talking about trying to make the viewer feel complicit and examine their own stance and feelings on these issues through a nine minute short. So yes, it's a small production, but the goals were absolutely large and having those larger goals are what are going to help you push through. Is this doable? Do we have enough money? This fell apart. Your dates got pushed. <laughs> yeah. All those kind of things. Yeah. Oh man, there's a lot that went wrong. <laughs> I mean, the other thing I would say is, is as much as it is, as this is important, do not be that person that endangers any crew or yeah. yourself. And one of the lessons I learned was because I was driving the picture vehicle at the end of our second day shooting, and this is two night shoots in a row and incredibly long nights, we're all exhausted. Everyone got in the van to drive back to Brooklyn and I drove the picture vehicle and I was not smart enough to tell somebody, come here and drive back with me. And driving over Staten Island after two days of essentially overnight shoots, right? overnight shoots, and I don't think I slept in between at all because there was so much to do. And I'm getting the picture vehicle and the equipment's in my producer's hallway in Brooklyn, and there's all sorts of things that we were doing. And uh, I I was so close to falling asleep <laughs> at the wheel on the way home, and I just I that was a lesson to learn: is not only protect your crew members with their sleep, and we've seen terrible things happen, um, but also you know, make sure, treat yourself like a crew member and protect yourself because I, I was lucky to make it back. I almost checked into a hotel on Staten Island if I found, if I could find one because I was so groggy at the wheel. Yeah. I think, you know, along those lines, um, referring to your, like your project instead of, 
I don't know, for me, this was helpful um, in a lot of ways. And it's something that I really do truly believe is that this is not my project. This is our project. So I would never use the term like my, I would always use our when we're talking about it. And I still believe that to this day because it's a collaborative thing. Um, and that's essentially why I made the short was because I wanted to get back into this collaborative space. Uh, and you know, once you establish that it's all of us in this together to make this thing together and that it's all of our voices that are being heard, that enthusiasm ratchets up about like 3000%. That's say. huge. Absolutely. So let's, uh, let's wrap up production. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was going to say, these are, the, <laughs> these are the things we learned from production. Uh, now that you have this short, this is something that I don't have yet. What really like what did having the short do for the feature let's, um, let's get there in a second because because there's a really important phase of this that i want to go through first is which it is editing? the editing phase <laughs> the one that you're right in the middle of all right <laughs> so so well you have you have an editor uh it was a little bit different it was different yep. for me because i got my start in filmmaking as an editor yep. and making a basketball feature now is uh, apt because the very first thing I ever edited was my own high school team's basketball highlight tape. And I learned of the powers of editing because we were terrible. But when <laughs> I was done editing this mixtape, we looked really good. That's good. So uh, that was that was the first and thing one I edited. Yeah, well, essentially, um, you know, I don't know. That, and one mixtapes are usually a lot of dunking. And there's the only dunking in my high school team's mixtape is the other team dunking on us I'm during sure. the, the blooper section. <laughs> but... Uh, so I, I got my start as an editor in film originally. I was editing in early versions of Premiere and Media 100 going all the way back to 1998. So I've been editing for, at this point, 20 years, but 15 at the point of the short. So I didn't have an editor. I, I edited it myself. And actually up until this feature, Amateur, I had always edited everything I did myself. Something that I would hear again and again is that the best way to learn how to make a film is by editing it. Um, yourself. So I, me and my editor decided that it would be uh, a good thing for me to make the first cut of the short, to make a rough cut of the short. Um, and I used Premiere and it was pretty bad. <laughs> it was like 27 minutes long. I hated watching myself. Um, I was not happy. But <laughs> like every, every, that's what they say though. The first cut is supposed to be terrible. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe it was good that I did it. I mean, it's it. not supposed to be, but it, but it usually is. Yeah. Um, you know, there were things about it. There there are always things about it that are good, but then I was like, this is not this is not moving. Like, a movie should, like, move. And it's because I didn't have the technical language to be able to do certain things that an established editor could do. So I passed it off to my editor after the rough cut, and he took about a month with it. Uh, came back with a version uh, right before Sunday it started, and I was really happy with it. Uh, it started to feel more like a short film, but it was still 25 minutes long. I think that's a valuable lesson there, too, though, is that getting the basic grammar and having it feel like a movie and the audience being able to suspend disbelief, it the bar is so high. Just to achieve that, it's so difficult. It's what makes this process worth it. it what's, it's what makes your goals worth it. But oh, yeah. it's not, you know... Most movies, they do not achieve that basic level of competency no. with ease. No, no. I mean, like, and that's what I was so, like, I was so worried that mine wouldn't achieve this basic level of competency because, like, that's all I really wanted, you know? Like, all I really wanted was this to actually look like a film. Well, you're also, you're looking at uncolor-corrected 
yeah. footage. You're listening to the production audio. Yeah. There are so many things about movies that come in the finishing process that even if your first cut from a story standpoint is really good, a lot of times, depending on what you're on set, DIT was able to do, depending on the quality of the sound recording. Sometimes those things are just so amateurish that, you know, a, a scene that works with a bad sound mix can be ruined just from that alone. Yeah, and you can use it. <laughs> for us on the short, actually, this, this was one of the interesting things about going from a short to a feature, is that on a short, we had a DIT who was really experienced, Tom Wong, and is also a colorist. So he could build us looks on set, build, right. us, build us a custom LUD, LUD a lookup table, and therefore, when I'm editing it, I'm happy with it's pretty close to what it's going to look like finally. And, and that's the stuff I'm looking at. Whereas if you go to a feature and maybe if your feature is, for example, not in a production town like mine was, then all of a sudden your DIT may just be a data wrangler. You might just be really just copying files and backing them up and make sure that you have everything. But you don't have it's interesting to go to a feature where you don't have some of the luxuries that you had on your much smaller short because the time frame is longer or you're in a different location. But it is something that you can come to your short with uh, in mind. Like, I did want my DIT, uh, originally it was going to be my editor. So my editor was set to come down as a DIT on set, um, but he had to pull out at the last moment because he got another gig. But I would say that that's something that you should definitely consider is having your editor on set um, if you are using another editor. Uh, and I, I personally... It's also something to prepare for is people dropping out. And then yeah. if, you're, if you're not an established filmmaker and you're in a town where a lot of people are working and have more potentially higher paying gigs, not only will someone drop you out, drop out, but there are scams people can run where essentially if they know they have you by the balls that all of a sudden that thing that you were promised for at a quote of this level, the day before, all of a sudden that's not available and they're offering you a replacement at a much higher rate and it may be too late to do anything. Yeah, I had a producer who, uh, my first producer I hired, I mean, I wouldn't say she scammed me, but I would say she was, she dropped out and she took my money. So (laughs) I don't know if that's technically a scam. Um, But I do- That would be like the least profitable scam of all time to try to find- filmmakers with no money and then it's it was a a really shitty thing to do like i'm not one to i'm not gonna like put this person on blast but like it it was it was fucked up and it made me pretty depressed for like a good couple weeks just one more challenge to look forward to exactly um but i will say that i do wonder how my short would have turned out if i had given it to my editor first without me touching it um that's something that i sort of haunts me. <laughs> well, here's what I find as an editor too. There's There can be a hybrid approach where I know that myself, I'm going to want to go back and watch every frame that I shot and mark it and say this performance, it's not just a matter of circle takes and this performance was the one to use, but I like this one little moment from this take and this one little moment from another take. And that allows me to edit it in my head and take the performances to another level. Absolutely. That if my hands weren't on the actual avid or premiere or whatever you're editing in that i might not have seen those moments so even if i'm working with an editor i still want to do a lot of logging and making notes yeah i mean it it was valuable in a sense for you though like what did you learn um from editing your first short that you then tran that then translated into the feature can i ask you that question now yeah for sure that too well i think the it's the same thing on the short as it is for the feature which is you can only look at the same piece of footage or scene yourself without being able to see it through fresh eyes so many times 
before you just can't see it for what it is anymore. Totally. So so opening it up is really valuable. And this will be a longer stretch of the feature podcast, of course. But for me on this short, I actually edited the first version very quickly. And then I took it to my filmmakers collective here in Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Filmmakers Collective. And that's a collective of people. We show each other our movies and we workshop it and you get feedback. And it's not just from your friends, which is important because these are people who are a professional filmmakers who have seen rough cuts before. So they're not walking in expecting a finished movie with visual effects and sound and all that. They're used to looking at rough stuff and they're look and they're used to seeing how something can go up a few levels later so that they can extrapolate what it would be once it's been through finishing and B because they're not your friends. They're not motivated. I'm not saying these people are my friends. They are, but they're there for a reason, which is to be honest. And someone, if someone tells you it's great, that's not helpful. You know, however good it is, it can always get better. And it's, it's helpful to have these other people's opinions on your work. And the thing I will say about that too, is what's different about showing it in front of an audience in person is that you are then forced to sit there and experience it. And a movie is an experience. It's not something that you can send to somebody and then just get an email from them later with feedback on it. Because what, what's ha- what will happen is you can see it through their eyes. And their eyes, they have a different set of life experiences. They're a different age. They're a different race. Whatever it is, you sit there and you can watch it as they are watching it, even before they've opened their mouth to give you feedback. And it's an incredibly valuable part of the process. I took the short to the collective I showed them one cut. It was 14 minutes long, I think. And there was an entire, there was basically a B plot in it that I came out with mixed feelings. And what it was, was I I just went through and I deleted everything I didn't like. And what I realized is I just deleted the entire B plot. So it went from 14 minutes to nine minutes. And then that was pretty much it. Sometimes you go workshop this thing over and over a lot. But once I got rid of this other thing based on, taking it in front of uh, BFC and getting their feedback, that helped me understand what it was in terms of, oh, really, it's just this. Mm-hmm. The other thing which ties it more closely to the feature and like made it more of a clean prequel is not important because your priority is to make the best film that stands on its own, not make it clever or neatly lead you into the feature. Totally. And, I, you know, for me, that point of realization hit um, because I'm not a part, you know, I'm not a part of a collective or anything, but I do have a very good support group in terms of artists that I trust. Um, but really, that moment hit for me when I was at South by Southwest this year, and I was actually going into movies and watching them based on my own experience editing and being like, "Why is this movie so long? <laughs> you know, like, why am I sitting here? Why is this scene extended to the point that it is?" And then I came back and I was immediately able to cut four minutes out of my movie um just because i was watching movies with the intent of being like here's what i would cut out of this movie if i could great so let's go to the phase that you have not gone through on your short yet which is figuring out how to release it and put it out in the world and what the strategy is okay so you you finish the short um the first thing you have to do i think is figure out whether you're going to go on the festival circuit. I mean, this is something that was probably a bigger deal for you at the time when festivals seem to care a little bit more about being the first place to premiere your short. Um, It sort of seems like it was a premiere at a festival versus a premiere online thing back then. And now it's more 
lenient I'm finding in some of the conversations I've had with programmers. Uh, what was your strategy in terms of releasing online versus releasing for a festival? My strategy was bad. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. It wasn't. It wasn't bad. But I think you know, as with everything, you learn something. And 2020 being hindsight, if you could do it over again, you might do it differently. In our case, the priority was that we wanted to get it out there relatively quickly because we were trying to raise financing for the feature to shoot that summer. And not only did we not shoot that summer, I don't think we shot the following summer. So when you look back at it, you can say, well, there really was no hurry. But at the time, the logic was we finished our short, it's March if you look at this calendar for major film festivals, when is the first one that we could submit to that seems appropriate that it might premiere at? So then you're talking about waiting even longer and potentially almost a year for a festival that might make sense. And while we're trying to raise financing to make a feature, if you have a festival selection, if you win an award at a festival, those things can help. But then what are you doing in that year? So the other consideration for us also was that it being a sports short, that there aren't necessarily a huge number of sports fans at some of these festivals. And so we were trying to reach a different audience and an audience that we thought we could reach online, maybe more than at a festival. So we put it out directly online. We just, we, we just posted it to Vimeo and I posted it to No Film School and we promoted it via social media. Thankfully, Vimeo made it a staff pick, and I think that's that's one of the great mechanisms out there. It's uh, it's not, I didn't have any connections there. It's just something that you know they have qualified people who love movies watching their content and selecting things, and if they select you, it can generate a whole lot of views. And it's sort of the you know the prestigious online version of film festival wreaths. So that helped a lot, and we got some coverage in the sports world, which was our goal. Ultimately, it worked, but I think if I could go back and do it over again, there's no reason that all of those things that we did online, we couldn't have done after getting into a film festival. And then, so since we put it online, we were then eventually, as you said, there's a little bit of a leniency in terms of online premieres versus festival premieres. We were invited to play some festivals, and I took it to NBC Universal's Shortcuts Festival, and it won the Audience Award there, which was great. There were 1,400 entries, and... It was cell phone voting in the room, which I didn't know was going to happen. And it was so rewarding to to have people watch these shorts and then vote. And I had no idea what to say because I didn't know there was an award. And then there was an acceptance speech that I was very ill prepared for. <laughs> but it was really exciting to have that experience in the room with an audience. Because if you watch my short, there is a twist at the end. And to be able to sit there with the audience as different people experience it audibly at different times someone gets it really early someone gets it a few seconds later someone else makes some really loud hilarious noise it's just really rewarding and you didn't get that on the internet so Mm -hmm. i'm glad that i had those experiences but if i could do it over again i might have tried to go to festivals first and then done the online route so you got the vimeo staff pick you got some festival recognition uh and also i guess uh, the sports magazines or sports publications picked up on your short uh how did that help to propel you into this feature? Some of the, what was helpful is that the, the sports features, we did an interview and I could show my grasp of the material and the research I had done. I did a Q&A at Grantland, which, rest in peace, yeah. is, is not, well, it was one of my favorite websites, but now they're the ringer. Yeah. And um, 
what happened as a result of doing that is we put that out there and then the phone rang and it was HBO. And there were really prestigious producers who saw it as a result and wanted to meet. So that was what was really nice about putting it out there in the world. I would say that ultimately the goal was to have the short help me make the feature. And one of the biggest things that happened was I had applied to the Sundance Screenwriters Lab two or three years in a row prior, and I had not gotten in. After I made the short and I applied with a new version of the script, and we'll do screenwriting in the next episode, then I got in. So that was the biggest difference was now I have something on my director's reel that shows my grasp of the material to go with the screenplay that can take it to the next level and help the feature get made. So aside from getting into the screenwriter's lab, which is awesome, of course, it's huge. What other doors did having the short open for you? When you're, especially if you're trying to make a feature, it's something that's going to be helpful at so many different phases of the feature process. For us, not only is it did it get into the help me get into the Sundance Lab, which was huge for us, but then when you're going into the phases of production on your feature, for example, if you're applying to different states for their tax credits, which are in some cases limited capped, right? They can only do a certain number of films in certain states. You're competing with other films. And if you're with your screenplay and a short up against another film project, that's just a screenplay. In many cases, the film commission can go watch your short and say, we like this project. We're going to give you the tax credit. That was one way it definitely helped. Another way was for me, prioritizing actors and performances and making that the centerpiece of the short. When I was approaching cast, They have something they can go watch and say, this guy knows performance. These performances are strong. He's clearly prioritizing that. And it makes them more likely to attach themselves to your feature. So that the short has paid dividends throughout the pre-production and the prep process of getting the feature made in ways that I didn't anticipate at the beginning. So, I mean, it sounds like a huge part of this was the fact that you had the short as a proof of concept for the screenplay, and then you had the screenplay in addition to the short, and that really was the thing that opened doors for you, in a way. Right. I mean, the, the short is is nice to have. It's a nice addition. But, of course, the screenplay itself is really the thing when it comes to the feature. And if we could do... If we were doing an episode of the first feature proportionately to the amount of time spent on each phase of production, we would do one episode on the short and 50 episodes on the screenplay. But thankfully for all of you, we're only going to do one episode on the screenplay, and that will be next. If you have questions about your own feature, as I said in the intro, uh, email us at firstfeature at nofilmschool.com. And you can find this and all other episodes of The First Feature at nofilmschool.com slash firstfeature. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out all of our shows by searching for No Film School in your podcast app of choice or by going to nofilmschool.com slash podcasts. We have new interviews with other filmmakers going up every Monday and Indie Film Weekly, which recaps everything you need to know while you're making a movie, which is the thing that I listen to throughout the process of making this movie to stay in touch. That goes up every Thursday. John, thank you for co-hosting and for making your own short. Thank you for having me and allowing me to make my short. (laughs) (laughs) See you all next time.